This is episode 24 of Cinescope, and one does not simply walk into Mordor. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today are Gabriel Green and James Hamrick to talk about one of our favorite films, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But first, how are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Um, I am really happy to be on this to talk about what is pretty much my favorite movie of all time. I am also doing pretty great as well. Yes, I'm definitely looking forward to talking with you two about it, especially because, as we're about to find out, you have your own podcast, and you recently talked about the first Hobbit film. So you guys sort of got me in the Lord of the Rings mood, and I contacted you earlier this week, sort of last minute, but this is something we had already talked about doing. So uh, how about, James, how about you introduce yourself first and tell the people out there who you are and what you do? So uh, I'm currently co-hosting Underrated, but... Myself, I'm at uh, I'm a college student here at A and M Commerce in East Texas, so uh, it's not super big, but uh, I like it here. Currently studying industrial engineering, though. Hopefully, at some point, maybe in the future, I want to try to get involved in film in some way. Film has been like a really big part of my life since I it was actually with the Fellowship of the Ring. Like I, I watched movies like any other kid, but then this came out, and my older sister who was a big fan of the book, saw the movie, and loved it. So she bought it, and she came home and showed it to me. And then you know, I watched it and thought, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And then when the extended editions came out with all the special features, I would sit down and watch hour after hour of it. And seeing the behind the scenes of these movies made me realize how much I, like, I loved the process, and I liked looking at individual aspects of movies. And so... Really, this movie is the one that catapulted me into just a love for cinema and talking about movies and really whatever way I can. Great. What about you, Gabe? Uh, well, my story with film is actually pre- pretty similar to James as far as how I fell in love with the, with the art form. Uh, but about me, I am uh, currently living out in um, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm interning at a, a small TV and radio studio, hoping to somehow get into the film business that would be my ideal job and so yeah I just came across these films as a young child and just fell completely in love with them and I mean I think it would be kind of honest to say that it, it, it kind of defined my teen years just these films and reading through all of Tolkien's works over and over again so uh, I'm really really happy to be talking about this film with you definitely now tell us a little bit about the podcast so Gabe and I met over um, a page called Popcorn Theology. Uh, it's a it's a great podcast, and it has its own Facebook group where we can talk about different movies and stuff. And I remember just commenting, saying that uh, it, it was right after Batman vs Superman came out, which is a movie that I actually like a lot. And uh, I just I also really really enjoy the Hobbit movies, and it seemed like there was a pattern of me really liking movies that were critically panned. And so I just made a comment saying. Uh, if I were to ever, you know, theoretically start a podcast, it'd be ones where I defended movies I liked a lot. And then Gabe commented saying, you know, like, oh yeah, I agreed that'd be cool. And then 
I think he was almost joking, like, oh, yeah, if we were to do it, this is how we do it. And then eventually, like, oh, well, I mean, <laughs> I think we both want to do it, so let's actually try it. And so that's pretty much how it began. Awesome. Yeah, Gabe and I, I think you and I met through Movie Bite when I was part of that with TJ and with Joe for yeah. a little bit. And so you were a listener of that, and that's how we first started interacting. And then I met you, James, when you started the podcast and through Gabriel. And so uh, we've, we've been discussing films for a few months now together, and I've been on your show once to talk about Prince of Persia, uh, which is a little bit different than stuff we discuss here because it's not a film <laughs> I, I, I love because it's not a it's not a great film, but it's a fun film. And uh, that's the sort of approach that you guys like to take. And I, I really appreciate that approach because it's similar in heart to what we do here at Cinescope. Yeah, I'm not sure I've forgiven you for that one yet, but uh, <laughs> it was a fun episode, though. It was. It was. Um, now, real quick, before we move on to our movie discussion, just some quick housekeeping. Everybody who's out there listening, please consider going to iTunes. Take a couple minutes out of your day. Go rate and review and maybe even subscribe, even if you don't use iTunes as your primary podcast provider. And um, if everybody sticks around, I will be shouting out to everyone who's left a review so far at the end of the show because I got to the point where I forgot to thank people on the show and then I didn't remember who I had thanked on the show. So I'm just going to thank everybody once again. And so stick around to the end of the show to hear a shout out if you've left a review. And then if you haven't, consider going to iTunes and doing that. And I will be more on top of that in the future. So that out of the way, are you guys ready to talk about Lord of the Rings? Oh, yes. Excellent. So we are talking about Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. It was released December 19th of 2001, the North American release date, at least. It was directed by Peter Jackson, who did the rest of the trilogy, the Hobbit trilogy, set in the same uh, Tolkien universe, the Frighteners, King Kong, and the Lovely Bones. It was written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and also Jackson, and was based on The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. The music was composed by Howard Shore, who is known for The Fly, Big, The Silence of the Lambs, Mrs. Doubtfire, Seven, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, The Aviator, The Departed, The Twilight Saga, Eclipse, Hugo, The Hobbit Trilogy, and most recently, Spotlight. It does star Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, John Rhys-Davies, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Hugo Weaving, Christopher Lee, Sean Bean, Ian Holm, and Andy Serkis. So, quite a cast list, quite a uh, a lot of credits here. Got some big names attached to this movie. What was your first experience with it? How about, Gabriel, you go first this time? Uh, yeah, I think the first time I, I remember coming into contact with this film is pretty much burned in my mind. Uh, my dad was watching, and I walked in right at the moment where uh, Frodo was wandering through an empty... Uh, uh, the empty bag end and Gandalf reaches out and grabs him and it, it freaked me out. <laughs> uh, but, uh, then he, sh- he showed the, he showed the whole film to us later on. And I remember being both loving it and being terrified by the ring rays and all that as a child. But, um, as uh, growing up, I just watched it over and over and over again, just fell in love with it. So that was my first experience with it. Great. What about you, James? Yeah. So, um, it was, it was whenever my older sister, uh, I come from a, a big family. I have five siblings. And so my oldest sister, who is already obsessed with movies, she brought it home and essentially made it a big deal, made sure the whole family got around to watch it. And 
we all loved it and from then on it essentially it became like a, a big deal anytime we we're gonna watch that we're gonna it's, it was gonna be like a family affair and so uh it's it's really not just a big part of my life but a big part of like the rest of my siblings um because actually we we watched it together again just a couple months ago that's great i uh, my story is a lot different than both of you because I was actually pretty late to the Lord of the Rings game. Um, I didn't see the first two until probably towards the end of high school, which would have been somewhere in the 2008 to 2010 range for me. And I didn't even see Return of the King specifically until sometime in college. So as of maybe four or five years ago was the first time I'd seen the whole trilogy all the way through. Part of that was because when I was young, I was a big Harry Potter fan. I started reading Harry Potter back in like December of 1999. So I was young. I was seven, eight years old at the time. And then Harry Potter movies started coming out within a month of the release of this film. And I saw it as competition. And so because I was such a big Harry Potter fan, I didn't want to have anything to do with Lord of the Rings because it was competing with my beloved Harry Potter series. So uh, right or wrong, that was my view at the time. I kind of wish that I had gotten around to it when I was younger, but I, I also kind of enjoy the fact that I was a little bit more mature in my uh, enjoyment of movies before I did see them. And since then, I've read the books while in college. It, it took a while, but I did it. And um, I mean, I just love Tolkien's detailed world building and his descriptive settings. A lot of people sort of criticize those books for that. But I mean, it's they're masterpieces of um, description and bringing us into this universe that he created and he envisioned and in many ways it's definitely a precursor to harry potter so um, as a kid i was definitely wrong in that sense and i have read the hobbit i've seen two of the hobbit films unfortunately not the third just yet um and nowadays i only watch the extended editions and so it should be noted that we're we're talking about the extended edition of this film today you know i don't even think i've seen the theatrical cut of return of the king maybe once but extended edition is basically the only way I go nowadays. Anyways, I finally saw it. I loved it. And it's just masterful cinema. There's strong acting performances everywhere. And Howard Shore's score for this, these films is like magnum opus. I mean, it, it it's top of his game. Some of the best film composing we've ever heard as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So that that's my story <laughs> about Lord of the Rings. And so I'm, I'm late to the game. But I'm glad to be here and on the hype train. So um, let's go ahead and move on to story a little bit. So what do you guys like about the story? I guess I've always liked the stories where you have like an unlikely uh, band of people kind of coming together to fight evil. And I think this also this this film captures Tolkien's idea of how heroes can just as easily be just simple folk who had decided to just do the right thing. It doesn't have to be these great mythic heroes, even though he did write about them. I think one of the core themes in all his writing is the idea of just a, a simple person standing up against evil and doing what they can, no matter what. And stories like that have always really stood out to me. Yeah, I would agree. It's There's something about it where it's it it's a pretty much the classic tale of good versus evil. You know, we, we've got a lot of movies like that, but I think that, I really like that the characters in this feel very real. And so it makes the themes and those in the story that much more meaningful whenever you have these characters who wouldn't really come together and these people that don't seem like great heroes. So, I mean, I agree with everything Gabe said. 
I mean, it's definitely the ultimate hero's journey, like back to Joseph Campbell and you have the hero, you have the quest, you have the mentor, you have all these aspects. And I mean, this is textbook hero's journey, but to its credit, it doesn't feel like generic movie or story formula, right? It's, it's definitely expansive and impressive and original in its own ways. And like I said, this is a precursor to Harry Potter. This is a precursor to much of the fantasy we see nowadays because this was written back in the the 1950s. So it's been around for a little while. And I, I think that really sort of speaks to its appeal in that its, its scope is huge and it follows these tried and true tropes, not stereotypes, tropes that are proven to be good storytelling techniques. And on top of that, the 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 cinematography like i said it's it's just gorgeous that we have these wide sweeping shots as a journey across the countryside and the action sequences are superb everything's easy to follow but it's never dull i mean that's that's a difficult balance to sort of match right you you see the jason bourne movies and sometimes the action is really easy to follow and you enjoy it but sometimes it's jump cut jump cut jump cut we're getting these one second bouts of like we get a punch and then we cut to another shot or another uh, viewpoint and it's just so messy and we don't have that here it's exciting but it's also easy to follow and any any epic medieval action film that's made after is always compared to lord of the rings now i think jackson he brought the entire genre up to a a whole nother standard and everything's compared to what he did and rightfully so just as you said all the battle scenes are incredibly exciting and uh, just and the, about the cinematography, like the just the epic helicopter shots with Howard Shore's theme blaring in the background, it's it's pretty much like the definition of epic. Something that I love that he does with the battles is just you were talking about it where it, it's easy to follow. There's there's always a sense of continuity in the battle. It never feels like just a series of people hitting each other. You you can visually see the ebb and flow of the battle. Uh, I mean, more so maybe in the second two, but even in this one, like in Moria, you can follow what's going on. It's very clear to the audience. And it, it seems, you know, like it would be something somewhat easy to do just to allow the audience to really understand what's happening. But because I feel like we don't really see it a whole lot, clearly it's something that's really difficult. And Jackson has just mastered that because all of these action scenes just feel like they flow really well. And it's like that from the prologue. I mean, from the very start of the film, we we get this uh, voiceover from Gladriel, and then we get this sweeping shot of the battle at the foot of Mount Doom. And you see the different factions. You see people charging at each other. You see you see everything, and it's it's so easy to follow. I can't stress that enough because in action films nowadays, we we don't get easy to follow action a lot of the time, and. Aside from the action, the exposition of the first like 20 to 25 minutes of the film all the way up to Bilbo leaving the party is just delightful because it's not we're not getting a whole lot of story story outside of the, the prologue itself where we're establishing what the ring is, who Sauron is, that kind of stuff. Then we all of a sudden we're in Hobbiton, we're in the Shire and we're exploring Bag End and we're seeing hobbits living their day to day lives and we're going to a party and we get to meet. Our, our main characters, we get Frodo and Sam and even Merry and Pippin a little bit. And so the first like 20 to 25 minutes is just a masterclass in 
establishing your story, introducing your characters, and not being overly expository to the point of boredom. Yeah, and I love how this feel the world feels like a real place. It feels like we're stepping into a story that's been going on for a thousand years and that will continue to go on after we stop watching. Not a, a lot of fantasy films try to go for that, but I, very few have succeeded half as well as he does here. Just the sense of history that isn't everything. Like there's the clothing and costumes. It's, it's never new. It's they're always kind of tattered and beaten up. It feels like we just feel the age and the weight of history and everything we see here. And I think that that adds a lot of just gravitas to everything we see uh, in the story. Yeah, it's it's the the benefit of on location shooting rather than doing everything on a set. The, much of this is filmed out there, right? They are exploring New Zealand, and much of these sets you can you can go explore where this was filmed. You can walk around. There's a Hobbiton set that you can actually physically walk around on and see where the hobbits lived and see Bag End, and um, it, it's just fantastic that this feels like a lived-in world. That's absolutely correct, Gabe. One of the things that I think they use to really give it that effect is just the amount of detail that's put in here. The environments feel, well, they feel real because they are real, but, you know, even whenever they're, on, you know, in sets like Bag End, you look, you see just papers are strewn about, uh, pictures on the wall of, you know, people that, you know, we have no idea who any of these people are, but everything looks lived in. Everything feels like there's a history. Rivendell is lined with paintings of things that look like they are of historical significance moria looks and feels like this you know old and decrepit dwarven city and so it is something that i feel like you see less in other you know other films just because i'm it takes just a lot of time and a lot of detail but i think it's worth it because middle earth at this point feels totally real Let's go ahead and sort of start the transition into characters, just because I think that's going to take up the bulk of our time. Uh, but before I do, since we talked Vertigo last week, I just quickly wanted to mention that Peter Jackson excellently uses the Vertigo effect in one moment of this film. When uh, after the shortcut to Mushroom scene, they are looking down the path right before the Nazgul appear, and we get this excellent Vertigo effect, the the, the Dolly effect, as they're looking down the path, and uh, we get that strange zoom effect as Frodo realizes something's coming. Um, just thought for the sake of continuity of the podcast, I'd, I'd mention that at least. Um, but anyways, so this film in particular, it's called The Fellowship of the Ring. And so much of this film, the focus is the fellowship. You have the nine embarking on their quest, facing their challenges, and eventually breaking up. That is the story of this film. You have Frodo learning the importance of his of his burden you have Gandalf facing that which he fears including the Balrog you have Aragorn struggling with love for Arwen I mean, you have all these things I don't want to list them all right now or otherwise we'll have nothing to talk about but <laughs> that that's what this movie is about so with that let's talk about characters and let's just start with Frodo what do we have to say about Frodo I think Frodo was you know it, it's it's a departure from the book because I think he's supposed to be 55 or something but I I really do like the decision to cast him younger because it makes it seem like it's this much more of a difficult journey for him. And just talking about this movie by itself outside of the trilogy, I think he's essentially a perfect protagonist where he's likable, he he's noble, he he essentially exhibits all of the quality that are necessary for for a protagonist, but then 
he's not just kind of this cardboard cutout character. We see that as the as the movie goes on, he he's even says to Gandalf, "I wish none of this had ever happened. I wish this didn't come to me." And he starts somewhat regretting what he's done. So he feels very real, like he he's still knowing that he has to do this journey, but he still feels like a real person who's you know deep down wishing that this didn't happen to him. And so I, yeah. I think because you make your lead character relatable, it makes the audience feel that much more invested in the story. Yeah, and he also, he makes mistakes, like, well, partially under the influence of the ring, but also things like trying to go to Mordor alone. He thought that was the right choice, but it turns out it wasn't. He would have never made it if, like, if he hadn't taken Sam and things like that. So he's he's not infallible. We see We see his flaws, but he's, as you said, he's still a very decent character. Right. Because of casting him a little bit younger, I, I agree, James. I think that really works because you really feel this enormous sense of weight and purpose that he has um, that I don't know if you would feel if he was played by an older actor. You you sense his burden as he's dragged into this mission that he frankly didn't ask for. Um, and aside from his heart, he's wholly unqualified. You know, he he has to ask which direction to go immediately leaving Rivendell. He, he has no idea what he's doing. And so that, that really shows the importance of the fellowship and the fact that Frodo is only as strong as his company. And I think that that really makes for a compelling character. It's not, he's not some character who can do everything by himself. He does rely on his company. And that's why this movie is so much about the fellowship and why the, the future movies are about him and Sam partnering together. Um, and speaking of Sam, what about him? I think he's pretty much my favorite character. Uh, growing up, it was Aragorn, but then as I kind of study the films more, I think it's definitely it's become Sam. Uh, just just the way Sean Astin portrays him, he's just such a simple, good, loyal person, and just there's so much heart in everything, like every line he has. And I I, I think Sean Astin should have gotten a, at least a nomination, Oscar nomination for his role here. Because I think he, I think he's the one who, who really holds this story together. Um, and just, I love just how simple his character is. He he doesn't, not in a, not in a bad way. Just he doesn't. He's not there for glory or fame or honor. He's just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Because he loves his friend, and, and that, that's all. That's really all the motivation a character needs. Yeah, he's an optimistic character, and in this film in particular. Ignoring the, the the two sequels at the moment, in this film, the majority of his role is to show concern and be supportive of Frodo. Um, there are many times when Frodo gets himself into some scenario where he's in danger, whether it's in Moria and he's about to be stabbed by a cave troll, or he's just been stabbed by a Morgul blade. Various circumstances, the camera always has a moment where it jumps to Sam and his reaction as he sees that Frodo is in danger. And so in that sense, it it's showing his sense of responsibility, but it's also showing him um, the, the, the journey coming ahead, especially at the end of the film when it's just the two of them. He, he knows what they have just overcome with the company of seven others. And now that they're without them, we're going to get to see him grow as a guardian and caretaker and really take care of this person he cares so much about and fulfill the promise that he made to Gandalf that is so important to him. It's, it's weird. You don't really get a lot of characters like Sam in a lot of things where usually if somebody, if there's a character whose you know, almost entire motivation revolves around protecting someone else or watching after someone, it's 
a lot of time it's almost portrayed as like obsessive and almost used for comedic ways, but here it's just he he's essentially what people should strive to be. He he looks at Frodo and thinks this this is one of my best friends. I would you know, I would die for this person. And aside from what this quest is about as a whole, even though he, he agrees with what they're doing, his mission is just to keep this person safe. And he thinks so little of himself, you know, and you know, we see that as the trilogy goes on, but like Gabe said, he's not about he, he's not in this for the glory or any sort of reward. He's in it because he sees it as the right thing to do and because he he knows that Frodo feels as if he has to do this. So if Frodo's doing this and he deems it a good you know, a good journey, then Sam is gonna make sure that it gets done. And I, I really can't think of another character to that that's quite like that. Yeah, he he he's even quick to point out one more step and I'll be the farthest away from home I've ever been. But he keeps going. He takes that extra step because of Frodo and because of the promise he made to Gandalf to protect Frodo. And so, yes, I, I think that's a really powerful character. And, you know, if if I could have one person give me motivational speeches for the rest of my life when I'm feeling down, I think Sean Astin would probably be that guy from <laughs> from Mikey and the Goonies all the way to uh, Samwise here in the Lord of the Rings films. He He really can sort of put on that that guise and and guide you to comfort and i i think it's really important to have a character like that um now what about our other two fellowship hobbit members so mary and pippin together i would say that you know just within this movie by themselves they don't get a whole lot of deep character development although they they do towards the end but it's it's not a fault against this movie because it they they evolve so much over the course of the next two films and so i think just within this movie they're they're really the comedic element that was needed because th- this isn't a super dark and dour movie but i mean you know the threat of this whole world is at stake in this and so it, they feel like the guys who are even more so than Frodo and sam like in over their heads kind of signed up for something they didn't realize they were signing up for but even at the end, you know, when they realize what this journey truly means, they become, you know, heroes themselves. These these two guys who are just nothing but like impractical jokers, and they they steal from other people's farm. They're just, I'm sure they would have had a reputation in the Shire, but after they've been exposed to this world that's bigger than them, that that's bigger than anything they could have imagined, they they end up growing a lot as characters to where the point. They they understand what Frodo is having to do, and they're willing to potentially die because you know there's there's no reason that they couldn't have thought that those Urukai are faster than them, and they're going to catch up and kill them. And but that was something that they were willing to do. So even even the comic relief of this movie gets legitimate character development. Yeah, they're they're happy go lucky, and they're oblivious to a lot, but they're extremely eager to help and to be a part of something bigger than themselves even if they don't realize how big that something is until later in the film and you're right they don't get a whole lot of character development here but the character development they do have mostly comes in the form of their relationship with Boromir right because we we start 
we start to see this bond forming between the three of them as Boromir refers to him as the little ones. And it's definitely not like a condescending term the way he says it. It's it's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection because he he starts to care about these hobbits, especially Merry and Pippin. And we see them sparring. We see them learning how to, to, to sword fight. We see them uh, watching after Boromir as he's knocked out in Moria with, by the cave troll. And so we see this relationship between these characters growing throughout the film. And then when we get to the departure of Boromir, we see Boromir sacrificing himself to protect these people, to protect the little ones. And they just stare on helplessly. They, they can't do anything. They don't, they don't have the ability. They don't have the, maybe the, the disposition at the moment, but as soon as they see him fall and he's unable to do anything, then they, they, do their best to retaliate now of course they're they're still hobbits and it's not enough and they're carried off but the the fact that they were so willing to try after witnessing the death of their friend it it really shows the the sort of growth that they come on and their willingness to to distract the orcs and the the urukai so that frodo can escape as they see okay this is something that frodo has to do let me play my part and I, I think that's a really powerful moment for those characters and that those closing moments of the film. Yeah, and I think having them come along, especially in the first film, is a great reminder to the audience of of basically what Frodo is fighting for. Because while him and Sam have to grow up pretty quickly, Merry and Pippa, they, they they still get to maintain their kind of childlike innocence and the, the, that attitude that a hobbits have toward to the outside world. I think they're able to maintain that. So to, it reminds the audience just exactly uh, of the Shire and, and what Frodo is fighting for in, in all this. And uh, I think it's a good reminder of that. Now, what about Bilbo? Now this def- definitely isn't Bilbo's movie. We get Bilbo's movie later, but we, we do get a little bit of him. And I think it's interesting to explore the Bilbo we see, especially now that we do have the Hobbit films. Um, I think it's cool that this is sort of the after of the the Bilbo we see portrayed by Martin Freeman, you know, um, we we see his sense of adventure, we see his mischievousness and his desire for fun, but we also see how he's sort of stretched thin by the ring and the effect that carrying it for all these years has had on him, and we see that nobody is completely um, immune to the effects of the ring, um, even the sweet little Hobbit. We, we saw what Martin Freeman was like playing younger Bilbo before he came into contact with the ring. And now we see him much, much later and we see the effects it has had on him. And we see him snap at both Gandalf and at Frodo at separate parts of the film. And then you see the way he cowers away as he realizes exactly what he's done and exactly what he has become because of what the ring has uh, made of him. And I think that that's a really interesting aspect of his character. Yeah. Ian Holm, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but I think he, he does a lot with his characters. It's 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 not a throwaway uh it's not a throwaway character. I think he brings a lot of heart and also as you said, his uh, mischievous nature, especially in, in scenes like the uh, the birthday party, is really fun to watch. Yeah, I I think, you know, it's definitely helped the performance is helped by having the Hobbit trilogy, you know, now to watch because we, we do see what he goes through. But even just contained within this movie it's it's crazy how much of a character he's able to make Bilbo in the amount of screen time that he has because after the entire trilogy, you think back, you know, all the major characters, at least for myself, I always think of Bilbo at some point. He, I'm never like, oh, yeah, yeah, he was in the beginning of Fellowship. Like, he's, in my opinion, he's an integral character to the story. 
And it's crazy. Think he's he has such a small amount of screen time in comparison to everyone else, but because of his relationship with Frodo that we're shown so early in the movie, we we already care about him. And I think it's helped by you know I, I'm with you. I I only watch the extended editions now. Uh, I, I feel like I'm cheated out of great scenes whenever I watch the theatrical cut. And there are some really great moments, some comedic moments. Uh, that just make him even more relatable to where when this movie is over, even though he was really only in the beginning, he was still a major part of this film. And that's a huge credit just to Ian Holmes' ability to to give Bilbo so much personality in his limited screen time. Yes, and you know, even without the Hobbit films, we did have the Hobbit book. So it's cool to see this film through through Bilbo having him as a present character we get to sort of revisit those locations and those those aspects of the hobbit even just the book we get to we get mentions of um the the misty mountains we get mentions of the trolls that turned to stone and we we get all these story flashbacks to what came before this story and i think that's a really cool thing that peter jackson threw in here and it's a reminder to those who watch the hobbit you know he he did the same thing in the lord of the rings where he was including stuff from other books but you know speaking of the hobbit another character that we have returning from the hobbit is gandalf and i think that we're all in agreement that ian mckellen is perfect i mean Everybody in this movie is perfect in their roles, but Ian McKellen, I cannot imagine anybody playing the role of Gandalf besides him. He, he's forever defined the role of just the crotchety old wizard. And uh, he sells the fact that this character is whatever, a thousand, two thousand years old. And just he, you, you buy in his performance that he has all this wisdom and knowledge stored up. And so like when he is lost, you understand how why the fellowship feels just completely helpless after that because he he was he was very much the guiding force of the team and so it kind of takes his loss for the other characters to step up because he he was the one that drove everything up till then and as you said Ian McKellen he 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 completely owns this role yeah it's weird to think that Sean Connery was originally up for the role you know <laughs> with I, I love Connery but I'm not sure what it was that kept him from playing it, but I can't help but be glad that something kept him from playing it because Ian, there, there's a few actors who I feel like were just put on this earth for certain roles because of how perfect they are for them. And I, Ian McKellen is absolutely one of them. He, he is Gandalf for me. And just imagining a reboot however many years from now, I, I couldn't see anyone else in this role because... So many of the lines from this movie, my favorite line is when he says to Frodo, you know, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Ian McKellen's able to express express like such sincerity with that line as he looks to Frodo and he has great comedic timing early on, you know, when, he, when his interactions with Bilbo towards the beginning of the movie and, and even with Frodo on the carriage, he, he's serious when he needs to be. He's He feels... Exactly like what Gabriel said, where he's this this person who's seen all of these different events and it's kind of shaped the way he looks at everything else. And he's the only character in any of these movies to actually get an Oscar nomination. Uh, I really wish that he won. He He's a character that we definitely sense his compassion, but we also sense his sternness and his sort of no-nonsense personality at times. But we also see his 
fear as he he has to make the decision to guide people or guide the company through the mines of Moria because he knows what waits here. He knows there's a Balrog, right? And we don't know at the time why he's so afraid, but we do see his sort of trepidation and unwillingness to go down there unless it's absolutely absolutely necessary. And then we also see the same betrayal. We see betrayal as he learns of Saruman's uh, deception and joining the the Sauron. He's he's a character of loyalty, and he it's it's really kind of sad when he tells Frodo, "I will go talk to the head of my order. He he'll he'll know what to do." And he, he's so confident. Oh yeah, Saruman will know what to do. And the next we see. Saruman is throwing him across the room, slamming him into walls, and then launching him into the roof of Isengard. And so there, there's definitely a lot of range in McKellen's performance. And I just I love the character. And I've got to say, probably the most emotionally affecting moment of the film for me is as they're escaping Moria, Gandalf has just sacrificed himself and fallen into the chasm. And the the music overcomes everything. It's pretty much the only audio we hear. And as soon as they all get outside, they all collapse and are overcome with grief. And wow, what an incredibly powerful moment as as we're we're uh, having our heartstrings pulled by <laughs> Howard Shore and his emotionally manipulative score. Which I'm not complaining. That's that's what he should be doing in that moment. It's the right thing for the moment. And that that's it's such a depressing scene because we've grown attached to this character over the last two and a half hours at this point in the extended edition or whatever it is. And he's just a great character. That That's bottom line. Yeah. I, I love the fact that this, the wise all knowing wizard every now that takes a vacation in the Shire. It's, it's, it's such an adorable thought him coming to just to, 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 uh, to a kind of a, a place of all these little people who just have these simple lives. And I think he, he kind of finds his rest in there and is kind of refreshed and, I think it's, it's a wonderful little thought. Yeah, and it's a testament to his character that so many people are so passionate about him. So many people are overcome with grief. The Hobbit, the Hobbits especially, we see the effect that he has had on their lives, and we see how overcome with grief they are uh, because of his loss. And that, that moment of sacrifice, as he says, fly you fools. And, I mean, let's not forget, you shall not pass. That is like one of the classic cinema film or cinema moments of the last 20 years. Um, It's just fantastic. And Ian McKellen is so good in here. Now, what about Aragorn? Probably the definition of just uh, noble kingliness. (laughs) They expand his character quite a bit from the book. Um, Like just the element in the films of his doubt and uh, unwillingness to at at first go and become king is something they added. And, And I like that. I, I mean, I think the character is great in the book, but I think having that added element that, that adds some tension between him and uh, Boromir, I think it, it does a lot for his character. And Viggo Mortensen is, is incredible in the role. Um, he really he, – he just sells just the, the wisdom of his character who's, who's a lot older than he looks. And um, and I think physically he, he sells all the sword fighting and all that, all that stuff. So I, I think it's, it's a really great uh, character. He's truly a man that I would follow into battle. Um, and you're right. Despite him sort of turning down the crown and snubbing his the fact that he is Isildur's heir, um, despite that, he does have the sense of regality and nobility to him. And I think that's a real testament to his ability and to his um, 
who is truly he's he's just truly good that's what's so astounding about the fellowship is all these people are there to do what is good and to be the opposite of evil um now that doesn't mean they're perfect they all have their flaws as we we're going to talk about boromir in a second but even even aragorn his flaw is that he he has this past that he's sort of running away from and that he's sort of trying to ignore to the best of his ability but obviously that's going to come back and he's going to have to accept it and step into that role but here he's just a truly good character he's always wanting to do the right thing and he he is an excellent leader even when gandalf is gone he he sort of takes charge and he 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 understands their grief, but at the same time, they have to keep moving or that they're, they're going to get captured and killed by the orcs. Yeah, and unlike most reluctant heroes, his, his reluctance is because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He thinks he truly believes that becoming king would be bad for the world. And it's not, and he's not uh, avoiding that so he doesn't have to act. He's still acting throughout and doing what he believes is the right thing. He's, he's, it's not that he's lazy or a coward. He's always, he's always fighting, but he's just doing it in the way he thinks is best. Yeah. And something that I love that the movie does with the character is the way they kind of portray him to the audience changes. Like it goes on a huge development from the beginning of the movie to the end. He's, he's introduced to us, you know, who are, who's seeing his character from the perspective of the hobbits as kind of this, the shady character, we're not entirely sure of his motivations. We think he's probably a good guy, but, you know, even though our, we, we have our doubts, we have to go along with him. And, you know, we have, even us as an audience, unless you've read the book, we have no idea how important of a character this is to where by the end of the film, it's exactly what you were saying, Chad, where it's like, this is a character I would follow into battle. He was, he just seemed like this kind of, this old ranger who, might still be trying to do the right thing, but now, like, no, we see that this is a noble character who cares for this world, and it's just really cool that this character gets more and more layers as the movie goes on. You know, when they get to Rivendell, that's we when we are introduced to his flaws and this idea that he's he's afraid of his own bloodline, and he feels that that, that keeps him from doing what everyone else thinks he should do to, you know, losing Gandalf and Moria, and now he's having to essentially take up the reins of being the leader it's just it's a really great arc that he goes on in just one movie yes i think it's important to to recognize that arc because he does start off as just a a scraggly ranger who looks homeless and is sitting in the corner of a bar but uh then he where he's introduced to strider and he he becomes much more than meets the eye and that's really the whole crux of his character is there's more to him than meets the eye and in fact hey he's a king or he's going to be and so i think that's a really interesting aspect of his character now the last man of the company we've got boromir and man boromir is just this truly tragic character because like i said everybody in the fellowship is a good person boromir is a good person but it it's his character is important because it shows us that even good can can be corrupted goodness doesn't protect him from the power of the ring he's tempted the same as anybody else and unfortunately it he falls victim to that temptation he's he is more susceptible than the others and he gives into it now he immediately regrets it and he is immediately redeemed um but that moment when he he 
approaches Frodo and he tries to take the ring by force. And then Frodo pushes him over after slipping on the ring and he runs off and he realizes what he's done. And he, he's overcome with grief and he, he reaches out for Frodo. He calls out for Frodo to apologize and it, it, he doesn't get that opportunity to apologize. And so to make up for his, not deceit, but his betrayal, he sacrifices himself. And that that's what makes him a tragic character in my eyes. Yeah, he's he's one of my favorite characters of this movie, and it's almost upsetting to see in, in pop culture he almost carries like a, a negative connotation. But to me, that that misses the whole point. In my eyes, he he's the everyman. He is he is the guy who wants to do good, but he's not perfect, and he falls to this temptation. But he's to me, he's pretty much the most relatable character out of the Fellowship. Because you do, you see his faults in an ex, like to an extent that we don't really see in the others, and um, I think this is easily my favorite performance from Sean Bean, and of all of his deaths, this is this is the best one. <laughs> um, but to me, I, the scene that probably makes like gets to me the most emotionally is his last conversation with Boromir, because you see that all along, even though you know he was. He was kind of the naysayer initially in Rivendell, and then we even, even though he doesn't betray Frodo until the very end, we, we see that he holds on to the ring in the snow over the mountain of Craterass. Um, you know, he holds on to it for a while longer. Of, of everyone, he's the one that we're most suspicious of, and yet at his death scene, he's still he's apologizing for what he's done. He's acknowledging it, and he's you know pretty much pleading for forgiveness from Aragorn, and it shows that. Throughout all of this, he's still he's still what you're saying is just a good person. He's wanted to do what is right, even in his betrayal. He's he says to Frodo, you know, all I ask for is the power to protect my people. It's still not really, though I'm sure in a sense it was selfish, but the overall motivation was just to get the ring for Gondor, and we see that even more in the extended edition of Two Towers, which makes him even more tragic character. But I, I think that to view his character in a negative light is to do a disservice to, to what his character was about. Any lesser film would have made the audience despise and distrust Barmy from the beginning and it would have turned him into a villain. But I, what I love is the film does not allow its audience to hate or judge him I think the point of his character is that anyone can fail. Even the best of us can fall to the power of the ring, which is what eventually leads to it being broken up. I, I think that that is a much more interesting and uh, thematically rich way to go than just making him a shallow villain. And <laughs> then even though he does a horrible thing, the film still makes us weep for his death. Uh, as James said, it's one of the, the best death scenes ever as far as just uh, dramatic up. Uh, uh, impact. Yeah, and I think what makes that more dramatic, while, while I was watching earlier today, he he goes down, he's got arrows in his chest and his torso, and he's just sitting there, and he's on his knees, and he has admitted defeat. He, he, he is physically unable to do anything further, and everybody just leaves him there. They don't kill him, they don't finish him off, they just leave him there, and he's sitting there, prone, defeated and realizing that he's been defeated and realizing that he has failed and that Merry and Pippin and perhaps even the others are about to be taken off or killed. 
and he just sits there and sort of wallows as as he slowly lays dying and then as uh the head urukai comes up and starts to uh, now try and finish the job he he's sort of just accepting and um while i th- I, th- I think that makes his death a little bit more powerful because he's not just killed he's defeated and he realizes that he's defeated and he just has the opportunity to sit there and reflect on that and that the that final conversation that you mentioned with aragorn james um i think that he he he's asking for forgiveness and that is another testament to aragorn's character in the sense that he 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 rejects his apology because he doesn't see the need for an apology he died protecting their mission and that is why Boromir is ultimately a good character. And there's a certain look of, of sadness in the, the moment you're talking about where he's on his knees understanding, you know, what's happened, that, that he wasn't able to to win this fight. And he just he just looks over to Merry and Pippin and just the sadness in his eyes makes his eventual death that much more impactful. Yes, and then speaking one more time to the the conflict that he sort of had with Aragorn earlier in the film, he says, you know, Gondor needs no king, and he he's sort of just anti this idea that Aragorn would ever take his mantle as king of Gondor. He he's completely against that idea, and though he follows him as a leader throughout the rest of the film, he's sort of always antagonistic. They have that fight on the river, right, where where they're they've just left um, Galadriel, and they. He, he's again trying to lobby for taking the ring and using it against Sauron. And, you know, you can't do that, but he doesn't know that. He's he's just, again, trying to do the best thing he can do. And that's what he, he's, he thinks is the best thing, is to try and use the enemy's power against him. And that final moment when he says, he, he acknowledges Aragorn as my king, that is just the ultimate redemption for him right there. Yes, he died protecting people, but then the fact that he... he acknowledges Aragorn as his king really just sort of seals the deal for me. Now, the last two characters in the Fellowship, um, in my eyes, they don't have a whole lot to do in this film. Um, Legolas and Gimli, the, the main thing that I sort of took away from those two characters in this film alone, we get a lot more from them in the future, but in this film, we just sort of see the the budding sort of conflict of their relationship. It's definitely established here that elves and dwarves typically don't like each other very much. And so we get a little bit of that back and forth. But overall, there, there's not a whole lot for those characters to do. What do, what do you guys have to say about them here? I think that um, in, in the special features, um, Philip Boyens was talking about how how difficult it was how it was going to be to portray the race of dwarves because you know we we go to Rivendell we go to Lothlorien uh, and you know with hobbits we go to the Shire we, we're able to see these different um, these different soci- races you know in their homes and the way they interact with each other and so she said ultimately the way the way they found out how to really explain the culture of dwarves. Is you cast the right dwarf and you cast John Reese Davies and the way he alone as a character fights and dresses and especially speaks with those around him, you know, with like Legolas. We're, we're told, at least almost conveyed an entire history between two races just between the interaction of these two characters, the way they speak with each other. There's, there's so many important things that we're being told just in lines of just them insulting each other and the the clear tension that they have between each other 
it goes so far in enriching the history of Middle Earth. And I think, you know, both actors are perfect for their parts. Orlando Bloom looks like an elf. He, he fights fluidly and, uh, he, he's not given a whole lot to do acting wise in this movie, but even when he is, I think he does really well. Like when he and Gimli first approach Aragorn as he, he lays over, uh, Boromir's body and he just has this look of sadness because as an elf, this isn't something that he's accustomed to. And again, that's just another way of him as an actor, as this character, portraying an entire race for us because this is something that's almost foreign to him and, and he just looks at him with pure sadness and, and John Reese Davies himself he has some of the best some of the best moments uh, of comedy in the whole trilogy and in this movie as well yeah I like that um a, like a piece of world building that Jackson brought to the series is how he he has the like the elves and dwarves move differently and like they how they fight I love just the elves they fight in like a very smooth and fluid manner. It's almost like a, a, a martial art they use. And I think uh, Orlando Bloom, I'm not sure he's the most uh, uh, ranged actor, but he's perfectly cast in this role. I think he, he gets a lot across in silence. He just seems, as, as James said, he doesn't have a lot of lines. But in just he just gives looks here and there that really work. Um, and uh, John Rhys Davies, the way he portrays the dwarves, it's just these very heavy set people that are low to the ground just and just kind of fight like a, a barrel just knocking everyone over and uh, as he said he's he's very funny really great comedic timing um just a, two great characters that don't get a lot of screen time but they uh we definitely get who they are from what we see right i i think that's important to note that we get a lot of this subtle sort of world building and establishment of both their characters and their races in this film um, now, I'm sure we will eventually talk about the the sequels, and we'll get to talk a lot more about their characters in those as they sort of mature and get a little bit more to do. Um, but here, they're they're just sort of baseline characters that we we get to look forward to more from in the future. Now, that's all of the fellowship. Um, were there any other characters that you wanted to mention real quick, or what? Uh, I would love to talk about just uh, for a little bit about the character of Saruman. Oh, sure. Let's do that. Just he, Christopher Lee, has this presence that commands every scene he is in. A lot of it comes with just the way the character looks. But, I mean, his voice, when he speaks, the audience is listening intently. And whenever we're first introduced to him, I think, yeah, that guy's clearly the head of this order. Just look at him. And then we, we only see him for like five minutes before he betrays us but then when he betrays us like oh but you were you were the leader like it it means something because of you know gandalf's lines prior to him but just christopher lee when he speaks he sounds wise and so then this happens and he he betrays gandalf and essentially all of middle earth and he serves he, he doesn't see the fellowship from that point on he has no interaction with anyone else and yet he feels like the genuine antagonist of this film. He, he's got no physical interactions with them other than a couple scenes with Gandalf, but you, he still is able to convey the sense of urgency, like, oh, we have a villain, even though he doesn't share a scene with any of our heroes now. He's still the villain of this movie, and he feels like a legitimate threat. Yeah, he's definitely a foreboding presence, and uh, that's helped by both his stature uh, Christopher Lee was a pretty tall man, from what I gather, and his voice. I mean, 
it's it you can't mistake Christopher Lee's voice for anybody else. Um, he, he definitely carries a presence like you were talking about in this movie and he's believable both as the, the leader of the wizard order and as the antagonist after he turns. Yeah. And another cast member I do want to briefly mention is, uh, Hugo weaving as El, as Elrond. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. I, I know most people know him as agent Smith, but he, he, he will forever be Elrond to me. Uh, I, I think he brings a great sense of gravitas and and regality to his role. Um, he does again. He doesn't get a lot. Of, he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he he makes the most of what he has. Yeah, what I like about Hugo Weaving as Elrond is he he seems to sort of show his age. You know, elves are sort of eternally youthful, but Hugo Weaving he doesn't look old in this film, but he looks battle worn. He looks like he's been through a lot and he's seen a lot. It almost more than Gandalf has. Gandalf looks the age. But in Elrond, I definitely see somebody who has experienced all of the ages. And I, I think that's a, a really cool aspect of his character. I, I believe that he is the head of um, head in R- Rivendell, right? He, he bears this burden. He almost bears a sort of guilt at the fact that the ring still exists today. If he had only done something, if he had been able to act and do something to get Isildur to do the right thing, then the they wouldn't be on this journey today they wouldn't be risking everything to destroy the ring now when it could have been destroyed thousands of years ago so yeah i i i wish i had written him down before but yeah i think that's very important hugo weaving is great here and then uh, other characters we just real quick there's arwen played by Liv tyler who's excellent um again we don't get a lot of her here but we really sense her emotion and um her attachment to Aragorn and I think this film sets up that relationship perfectly so you can sort of see it build in the future films I definitely buy that she's an immortal elf yeah and and something that Jackson does in this movie that I love and he he continued he did it in the Hobbit and he does it in these as well where he really relies heavily on Tolkien's greater lore and a lot of it comes from the appendices in this case where Arwen is really not a big character in the books Uh, she's mentioned she has somewhat of a presence but in here he, he knows what Tolkien does say about her and what is canon about her according to Tolkien and he decides that you know why not use that why not give just add that extra motivation for Aragorn to make his character that much more compelling and I think the addition of all of this stuff from Tolkien's other works really helps out her character a lot in this movie Well, let's go ahead and move on from characters and talk about music briefly. Now, before we talk about specific musical moments, um, I've sort of done like musical lessons on this show before for those who maybe aren't as well versed in musical terminology. Now, the the terminology that I want to teach for this episode is leitmotif. That is spelled L-E-I-T-M-O-T-I-F. And what a leitmotif is, it's a musical theme or idea that is representative of a character, a place or maybe even just an idea. And it's it sort of popularized. It's very associated with Richard Wagner from back in the late 1800s and opera and stuff like that. And John Williams is known for leitmotifs, especially in Star Wars universe. But I would, I would venture to say, as much as I love Star Wars and I love the music and I love John Williams, I think that Howard Shore has written like the textbook on leitmotifs with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We have themes for the ring and its power. We have themes for the fellowship. We have themes for the Shire and uh, the 
the ring race and the fighting Urukai and the Eagles and all these different things. And it returns throughout the film. When you hear the ring theme, you know exactly what it's referencing. When you hear the fellowship theme, you know, this is a big moment. This is a, a moment of adventure, or this is a moment of contemplation after they've lost somebody. It's just so well put to use in this film. And I, I mean, it, it's, incredible and something that's awesome about the extended edition since that's what we're talking about is for the extended edition after compiling all the extra footage into a new comprehensive film uh howard shore went and recomposed and re-recorded an entire new score for the extended edition of the film and so it's it's just like i said earlier this is a magnum opus the the score for this film and for the other two films in the trilogy is just beyond words yeah it's definitely my favorite score for any film ever i'm like the the runner-up for me would be star wars but what this movie does more so than star wars for me is it heightens whatever emotion the movie is trying to evoke from us you know when we're supposed to feel sad like with the uh gandalf's death it it's heart it's a heartbreaking theme um whenever we're supposed to feel like triumphant like like really adventurous whenever the fellowship first leaves rivendell or whenever they leave the, the crashing bridge in casa doom it it wells up and it's exciting and um and then to me the, the shire theme is the greatest musical piece ever made and sometimes like just hearing that itself just gets an emotional reaction from me uh from me even apart from the films even if i just hear it played in the background i stop i'm like oh this is the shower thing i'm gonna listen to this it's just so good yeah what's cool about the concept of leitmotif here is that we don't get like the full theme right off the bat for anything except for maybe the ring but the first time we hear the hobbit uh the shire theme we hear a little bit as Bilbo is introduced and as the fellowship of the ring title flashes, um, well, that's the first time we get a glimpse of the fellowship theme as well, but we, we just get a little bit here and then we get a little bit there. And, um, the fellowship theme, speaking of that, we get it when we first get the, the title reveal at the start of the film after the prologue and we, we hear glimpses of it here and there, but it's not until the council of Elrond and Rivendell that we get the full fellowship theme. And like when Boromir dies, we get a sort of, more, a mournful iteration of the theme and the the hobbit theme is also manipulated at times sometimes it's more uh hopeful and slower rather than the pure simple and joyful iteration that we hear at the very beginning when we're in the shire and sometimes it's even melancholy like it makes you feel sad because it's it's them longing for the shire it's longing for home now that they've been gone for so long and they're in situations that are completely opposite from home life in bag end and it almost becomes a sort of sam frodo brotherhood theme by the end of the film and i it's it's just amazing the sort of development that he puts each of these themes through throughout the course of the film yeah i love that each location has its own very distinct theme that's like now, whenever, whenever I hear that music, no matter where I am, I'm immediately taken back to the scenes from the movie where they are. And just the, the sheer amount of uh, different themes and motifs he uses throughout uh, is pretty astounding. And I think like the ultimate test is like when he brings them back, like in the Hobbit trilogy, the same themes were instantly 
it, it, it just brings the audience back to all the memories they have from the previous films. And it's, it's, it's such a powerful score. Um, and it just, just, it sounds great. It's just beautiful music throughout. Are there any other sort of standout moments as far as music goes? Like earlier I mentioned Gandalf's death and as they exit the mines and they, they go into the fresh air for the first time after being underground for so long and the, the music just sort of swells and covers up everything and we just see all the characters racked with grief and they're just sitting on the ground sobbing and Frodo walks off and Aragorn calls him and he turns around and we just see a single tear fall down his cheek and I mean that that is so emotionally effective and it's bolstered by Howard Shore's score what other moments like that are there for you guys one of my favorite moments is just for the first time it's after they've been established as the fellowship and they leave rivendell and it's the shot that was used in all the trailers where they walk past the rock and they in single file and the the fellowship's theme just swells i mean it, it essentially became a full theme at the council of elrond but it was here that it, it really it really kicks in a full gear at this moment and it makes what's essentially just the camera sitting still watching some people walk by feel like one of the most epic moments in the whole movie yeah, and uh, another musical moment that always stands out to me is the uh, the Kazadoom theme, where they're running from the Balrog, and you just have these uh, a bunch of Maoris chanting in Dorvish in the background, and you just get all like the history and power of the Dorvan culture through that music. It's in- incredibly epic, and the visuals, just the huge visuals we have of the uh, Dorvan halls is is a uh, very very uh, stunning. I think that. This is like if you want to study film scores and study themes and connectivity and um, continuity, this is the place to go is the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Howard Shore's score because it's going to teach you everything you need to know about developing themes and introducing themes and manipulating themes and carrying them over into subsequent films. Uh, and really building on them and adding to them. Um, so if, if you're at all interested in film music or if you're wanting to get into film music, I would definitely recommend this is a great starting point. Now, let's go ahead and I, I know we could we could just wax poetic about the score for, for forever. <laughs> so we're going to sort of have to move on because I think the, a lot of the score could sort of speak for itself. And let's get on to the themes and relevance section because... Um, we've already talked a lot about sort of individual motivations and smaller takeaways, but what are some of the the bigger ideas presented in this movie? Gabriel? There's so much going on in these films. Uh, I think one of the big ones is the importance of, of friendship and just how how no one person can take this quest alone. They, they need this group about them to support them and guide them and just provide, provide whatever protection or wisdom that they don't have. And I just when it ultimately... Even when it's brought down to just two, they they need each other to complete this quest. Frodo could not have done it on his own. And so just friendship as a theme is really good. And also, I, I mentioned this before, but just the, uh, the theme Tolkien uses a lot of just the nobility in simplicity. How the Hobbit, there's nothing special at all about any of the Hobbits. They're just, they're just literally tiny people that only care about being comfortable but Tolkien takes them and makes them the heroes of this story and and ultimately all that it shows that ultimately all that matters to be a hero is just to be willing to do it they uh it, it doesn't have to be anything particularly special about them they just have to be willing to stand up against evil and do what needs to be done and I think that's a really uh it's a really a uh, beautiful and, and important theme 
Yeah, I actually wrote down a couple of quotes relating to that. So there was one at the very end of the film where they say, then the fellowship has failed. And Aragorn responds, not if we hold true to each other. And that's a real, that's exactly what you were saying. It's about brotherhood and togetherness. And together we, we can accomplish things. We can accomplish tasks as one rather than individually. And in the same vein, Sam, or at the very end of the film, Frodo says, I'm glad you're here with me to Sam. And so it, it's, I, I mentioned this quote specifically because it's actually echoed in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, right? At the start of the, the book or the film, whichever you want to reference, Dumbledore says to Harry, don't worry, you're with me. And at the end of the, the, the story, when they're in the cave, uh, he says, I'm not worried, I'm with you. And it's that idea of accomplishing things together and seeking comfort and companionship and finding people that you can count on. And that's definitely a strong theme here. And that's why the fellowship itself is important. Like I said earlier, um, it's finding solace in the people around you and comfort in those. What about you, James? So, I mean, I definitely agree with everything y'all are saying. And I think uh, it's a quote I've mentioned before, but my favorite quote from the film is when Gandalf does say, uh, all you have to do is, or all you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. And to me, that's almost the theme of this movie is you can't always control the circumstances you're in. Like Frodo, we've probably all said, you know, I wish that this didn't happen. I wish that this isn't happening to me. Um, it's a pity this didn't happen before. It's a pity this guy didn't do this. But Gandalf says, none of that matters. You had no say in any of that. However, the situation you're in right now is real. So what are you going to do with that time? Because that's what's important. And the, the movie provides the right answer to that, which is do what is right. You know, they, they find other people who have a desire to save this place and they do what they believe is in Middle Earth's best interest. And so despite what seems to be an impossible task, these unlikely group of people who are all united under this idea of of doing good and doing what they can with the time that they have that that's to me seems to be the theme of this movie and the whole trilogy. And then almost all of Tolkien's literary work as well. Yeah. That it's uh, that's sort of this films when life gives you lemons quote, right? What are you going <laughs> to do with what life has handed to you? And in that same scene, Gandalf talks about how Bilbo came across the ring because he was meant to find it. And in that same sense, Frodo was meant to have it. And he says, don't you find some encouragement in that? Don't you find comfort in the fact that this isn't all completely random? There's a purpose for you, and there's a journey that you're meant to go on. And I think that if we all sort of take that approach to life, if we realize, you know, we're not just here. All of us have a purpose. All of us have a journey to go on. And all we have to do is accept that and take on life. And I think that 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 is probably the biggest takeaway for me. It's funny that that idea comes up so heavily in here because we, had, you know, we last night just recorded an episode on underrated with Richard Foltz of Popcorn Theology of the movie Signs, and the idea that nothing happens without happening for a reason is a huge theme in that movie as well. And I love everything that Gandalf says in that scene when when he does say, he says to Frodo, "That is an encouraging thought." Bilbo was meant to find this ring. Everything that happened with Gollum, even you know Gollum telling them about the Shire, all of this that seems to be bad, 
there's purpose behind all of this. <laughs> like the movie essentially affirms providence and and the idea that we can look at providence as an encouraging idea, knowing that nothing is random. Um, it makes for some really great moments throughout the whole movie. Any other sort of takeaways? Okay, what about final thoughts? If you had to sum up your opinions on this movie and sort of what you take away from it, what what would you say? Gabriel, what about you? This this film means so much to me on, on a whole variety of levels. Just as, as a film, as an epic adventure, I, th- I don't think it, uh, cinema gets much better on that front. Plus, there's just there's so many themes, as we've discussed here. There's always something more you can dig into, something to think about. Or, uh, or just to inspire you in, in life. And, uh, I think just, uh, I, for, in my opinion, <laughs> this, this trilogy is, is probably just about the greatest achievement in film. And this is my favorite of, of them, uh, for all the reasons we've gone through. And it's just influenced my life because it's made me want to become a filmmaker. And just the choices I've made in career, in career paths, it's, it has been influenced by my love of this film and how it inspired me. So this is hugely important to me. What about you, James? Yeah, so it, it's incredibly similar to what Gabriel said, where I've always described this trilogy as a whole as the pinnacle of human achievement in cinema. I, I seriously don't think that, especially for myself, I will ever enjoy movies more than these because, you know, watching the way these movies were made, you see the time and care that was put into this. And so I think it's an encouragement to people who want to be in films to be assured that it's noticeable when you really care about what you're working on, it comes across in film. And so, you know, it's hard for me to pick a favorite among all of these. This is no less great than the other two. And it it has just like it real affected, um, affected my life in a huge way. If, if I do end up getting into film, it's going to be because this movie jumpstart, uh, jumpstarted my love with cinema in general. And so, yeah, I, I think that if, if you haven't seen this movie by now, eh, it's crazy. But if you haven't, for, for whatever reason, maybe you're still thinking the same way that Chad did earlier, <laughs> you should see this movie because, it, it, in my opinion, it, it doesn't get any better. Yeah, like I said earlier, I didn't see this film or any of these films early enough to, for them to be formative for me. But because I was sort of matured in my opinion of films and my exploration of films, I really appreciated everything that they had done to create these films and this film in particular. Um, I, I think that the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole, I mean, you could count it as one movie because they were, they were all filmed at the same time. Right. So the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the best, probably fantasy film of all time. And I mean, it's among one of the best films of all time. It, it's just an, a classic achievement of cinema. It's, it's, high quality on every level on casting on music on story on character development it's all there it's all what we want and i mean as far as all that goes as far as book adaptation goes too this isn't a literal adaptation of tolkien's books it it's a great they it uses the books as a starting point and follows the books but jackson also made this his own as well and i think that that this showcases everything that book adaptations and films in general should be and i guess that's it anything else guys i could seriously just sit around and talk about how amazing this movie is all day so i guess it's it's better to cut me off now (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, same here. <laughs> okay, then. Well, like I said earlier, I'm sure you guys will be back and we'll talk about the the other two because we can't just leave them here. Now, I, I was chatting with you guys earlier and after watching this film, I, I was sort of sighing to myself and also getting excited at the same time because this means I'm going to have to go and finish watching the other eight hours or nine hours that's left of this trilogy and then go back and watch the Hobbit films. Now that I've dove dove into this universe, I I can't go back out until I've finished everything. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I I literally went and bought the extended edition Blu-rays after watching this film. I had the the DVDs, but I wanted the (laughs) Blu-rays. Good choice. Good choice. (laughs) Anyways, with that, this is the end of the official 24th episode of Cinescope. Thank you guys so much for coming onto the show and talking about this with me. Uh, you're very welcome, man. It was fun. Yeah, I was really happy to be invited on, and I'd love to you know, talk about any, any opportunity to talk about these movies. I'm, I'm ready to jump on. Definitely, and we will make that happen in the future. Now, contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast or at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please remember to rate and review on iTunes, subscribe to, and like I said earlier, I'm going to thank everybody who has left a review on iTunes so far. So, Eric Woods, Joe Darnell, C. Somo Family, TJ Draper, Melanie Sanchez, Zephroff, Aaron White, Ethan Small, Through the Crate, Moksha Grin, MNBVC987, Dead Man Devil Man, Tyrone in Oklahoma, One Cool Coconut, Aaron Lindsay, Necromouse, Katie White, Gabriel Green, 82Dre82, James Hamrick, Jay Derbs, Philip Hurd, and Noir Alice. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, leaving a review, and helping us to reach more people. Thank you, guys. And remember, you can also email feedback and ideas to Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, being a part of the show, talking about a movie you love, let me know and I will schedule you on. Now, if you follow me on Twitter, if you follow the show on Twitter, you will know that I currently have all of our guests through episode 30, except for maybe episode 29, booked. So all the way through mid-February, we have shows planned out, which is a record for the show. Sometimes I've been sort of getting everything planned and ready to go by the skin of my teeth. So be looking forward to everything we have coming over the next five, six episodes. It's going to be really cool. Now, your turn, guys. Gabriel, where can people find you online? Uh, well, if you wanted to check out our podcast, Underrated, uh, we have a website, underratedpodcast.com. We're also on iTunes as Underrated. And if you want to chat with me about film, I'm on Facebook as Gabriel Green. Feel free to shoot me a friend request. What about you, James? Uh, yeah, so he already gave the website, but you can also follow us on Twitter at underrated underscore pod. And I'm on Facebook as James Hamrick. And like Gabriel, just feel free to shoot a friend request. I'm always up for talking about movies. Definitely. And like I said, their show is similar in concept to what we do on Cinescope in that they are out there to defend the films that other people won't or to remind us of the films that other people have forgotten. So definitely consider going over to Underrated Podcast and checking that out. The last episode I listened to, which was just last week, I think, was the hobbit unexpected journey episode so if you're feeling some more lord of the rings you can go and check that episode out and they just recorded a new episode that you'll be looking out for soon now for me 
The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And reminder, all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at the website at thecinescopepodcast.com. And also, if you didn't know, I provided iTunes links to everything we talk about. So if you're interested in checking out the extended edition of The Fellowship of the Ring and you don't own it and you don't want to go out and buy the DVD or the Blu-ray, there should be a link in the show notes on your podcast player or wherever you listen on the website to the iTunes version of the film and also the soundtrack. There will be links to both in there. And if you click those links, they are affiliate links and they just help us out a little bit by earning us a little, a little, little bit of cash. And that that's always helpful. Anyways, that is all for this week. Gabriel, James, thank you so much. One more time for being on the show. It's been a blast. Thanks for having us. And thank you everyone for listening to episode 24. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 25. Have fun, and celebrate movies. Movies.